Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick reminder that on Monday, the Darkwater Project will be pushing the fourth session of the Darkwater Project's Fall 2022 Colloquium into the Modern Art Notes podcast feed. Darkwater's Colloquium is titled Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation. In the fourth session, we talked about Reginald Horseman's book, Race and Manifest Destiny, The Origins of American Racial Anglo-Saxonism, and applied its look at American history to 19th century historical American art. Should hit your feed on Monday around 3 or 4 p.m. Eastern Time. On to this week's show. My first guest is Museum of Fine Arts Boston curator Rado Turing. With Akili Tomasino, Turing is the co-curator of Frank Bowling's Americas, which opens at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston this weekend. The exhibition presents the work that the British Guiana-born Bowling made when he lived in New York from 1966 to 75, at which point he returned to London. The show features the often enormous paintings Bowling made in those years and considers them within the context of his art criticism and curatorial projects. The exhibition is on view through April 9th, 2023. The exhibition catalog, and it is a really, really good one, was published by the museum. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for just $40 to $50. Highly recommended. On the second segment, Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. But first, Rado Turing, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso cut papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso cut papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso Cut Paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31st, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Reto Turing, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Your exhibition covers work the British Guiana-born and London-based Frank Bowling, made between 1966 and 1975. Why those specific years? What about those years make them a period in Bowling's career worth specific consideration? Frank Bowling went from Guyana, where he was born, to London, where he spent most of his time studying. And in 1966, 
after a few trips before that time to New York, he decided with a lot of intention, I'd say, to go to New York and live there. So in 1966, Frank Bowling moves to New York and stays there until 1975, really immerses himself in that art scene. I think it was an intentional move insofar that he really understood that New York at that time was a center for arts, its debates, a lot of where the innovation really was happening. And he wanted to be there at that center, making art and working and debating himself. And so I think with great intention, he immersed himself in that environment. And the next nine years during which New York would be the primary place of residence for Frank Bowling, really mark an incredible, intense time of innovation. You can really see him sort of like think through his painting practice and move rather quickly actually from a more figurative style to almost a full-blown abstraction around 1975, which is when he moves back again to London. He would actually maintain a studio in New York after that and go back and forth. So 1975 doesn't mark a abrupt end to his time in the US, but it is the time when he goes back to New York to live there again as his primary residence. And so we decided to take that almost decade as the brackets for looking at his work during that time, but also really think about Frank Bowling as an artist who is still very, very productive and continues to work today as well. Perhaps we should set up the New York period a bit. What kind of work was Bowling making before leaving London for New York? And, you know, his art historical engagements were particularly British, I think you could say. You know, what type of work was he engaging in London? I think you're right when you say that his art, in a way, was was rather British up until the mid-1960s. I think you can see him sort of work through, especially Bacon, Francis Bacon looms large, but also some of his contemporaries. He was, in fact, a very successful, he had a successful career in London. When he graduated, he came in second after David Hockney. So he certainly was very much part of that British scene. But I do think his intention was to maybe immerse himself in a different environment and really also already at that point, maybe thinking, looking forward about a less figurative and more abstract style of painting. And I think that is really what he did find in New York compared to, to London and its art scene. And then it's interesting, I would say also to think about that he was as a black artist in London, he didn't have many connections to black artists, African-American artists in New York upon his time of arrival in New York in 1966. So it was also, I think, a discourse and a debate that he immersed himself as much as sort of like the more formal discussions around painting. I thought some of the address of that experience Bowling had in New York was, was some of the most interesting material in your essay, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute. In these works, in these transitional works that Bowling makes between London and New York, there is a building that recurs over and over again. What is that building, and why, why do we get so much of it in Bowling's 
work of the mid to late 60s. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. The building you're referring to is Mother's House, which was also a convenience store from New Amsterdam, Guyana, where Bowling grew up. And so it's this recurring motive that I think is a beautiful metaphor and very Bowling-like in terms of giving a hint at sort of the complex background that he brings with him as a painter. But then you can also see him sort of like almost work against the image itself by erasing it, by screen printing over on top of it. And so it is this constant battle in a way between figuration and abstraction in which Bowling himself as a persona and with his specific background and perspective that he brings to his art is appearing and disappearing in his in his own work on a very constant level and so the his mother the, the image of his mother's house is this recurring motive that sort of starts to appear around the mid-1960s and then over a few years in various degrees of abstraction um, one can see being reapplied again as mostly a screen printed image in different works, including some of the works that then sort of give way to the iconic map paintings that Bowling starts making. Yeah, one of the reasons you argue in your essay that the house is important is that it functions as Bowling's inclusion of and address of the migratory experience, the experience of British colonialism as people in colonial lands worked their way to the metropole. How do we see that in the paintings, this kind of, I don't know, tension is an overused word, but I guess tension um, or coincidence between this place in this building in a colonized place and Bowling's making of British art? I think the point is exactly that it is a place, right? And it's a very specific place. Yet to a someone looking at Bowling's work with not a lot of preconceived knowledge, it might really just be a building and not much more. Although you can actually, if you look closely, I think you might be able to detect sort of like some of the history or like the, the, the colonial history it might sort of like come from. I would say places are important, not just as how, how Bowling uses the image of his mother's house and convenience store, but also, for example, in the map paintings, right? Maps like the outlines of Guyana appear frequently in his works, and the outlines of the continent of South America appear as well. Again, specific places directly linked to Bowling's own history. However, again, there he also sort of like almost puts these images intentionally under a lot of stress by erasing them, by painting over them. There's a quote, I can't give it back to you word by word, but sort of like how Bowling talks about how he uses the map and erases them and paints over them until he gets a ghost. So there's these ghostly images. And I think that's a really important term there that sort of like haunt you and that give a hint maybe at Bowling's background, but yet they don't truly give away that much information. So it's this constant back and forth Bowling is, I think, aiming for in these transitional paintings between figuration and abstraction. One of the ways he gets that ghost-like presence is in the color he uses and the way that he uses it. 
and you know, not to not to do too much of a peek behind the curtain, but but Frank Bowling has always been one of those artists I've wanted to have on the show, and it's never quite been possible. But one of the reasons for that is that I'm fascinated by his palette and how it manages to exist both between the countries and histories he's referencing with the house in these early works and the maps later on. Where do you think, you know, taking a picture such as Mother's House from 1966, which I think is the second work in the show, as maybe a a good example, what is informing Bowling's palette? Why is he picking the extremely bright, extremely specific colors he's picking? It's a, it's a really good question. I don't really have an answer to it insofar that I think it's a very personal, a very personal choice. What I find absolutely astonishing about Frank Bowling's color palette is this is a personal story, but um, I think one worth mentioning when I, so there's a painting by Frank Bowling in the MFA's collection titled Suncrush from 1976. And if you took away the colors, and if you wouldn't look very closely, which I'm saying, because if you do, you can see there's a tremendous sort of like technical complexity in these paintings. But if you wouldn't do that, and the colors were different, you would get rather close to Morris Lewis and sort of like first generation um, color field painting. However, if you actually then put in those colors that are so bowling-like, and that, to my knowledge at least, I don't really know about any other artist working around the same time who applied the same super high-pitched, intense color palette. There's something that makes these paintings something completely different than traditional color field painting. And so, in a way, they com- they remain completely abstract, right? Suncrest is one of the and um, the poor paintings made right at, this one made actually right after his time in New York. However, they're poor paintings starting in 1973, 74, 75, that are completely abstract. So those are abstract works, but somehow through these colors, there's something, I'm not sure what it is, but clearly there's like a, a sensitivity maybe about Bowling's history, this kind of intense, colors, the the vibrating tonalities, and then, of course, the title Sun Crush itself that introduces, again, at a very subtle, almost not discernible level, a much more personal narrative. And I think it's similar. So going back to the work you mentioned, Mother's House from 1966, it's similar in that way that I think Bowling is working through some rather traditional if you will, approaches, formal as well as in terms of the images he uses, but he succeeds in making them absolutely his own. So there's a there's an appropriation happening there with that house in combination with the color palette, in combination with sort of like tweaking those styles between abstraction, figuration, color field, um, screen printing, that he manages to so successfully master making it absolutely his own work. And that's like an ability that comes through again and again in these different series that you can see him walk through during those 10 or so years that he spends in New York. I notice 
in Bowling's paintings a lot of Fran- Francis Bacon's colors, sometimes like really directly Bacon's colors. And it kind of feels to me like one of the things Bowling does is he makes Bacon's color stand for England, it stands for stand for London, you know, the imperial center. That that while there's obviously not a lot of representation of of London or or England, he can use he can use colors that read to a mid twentieth century audience as being really familiar as being from there. I think that is a really interesting observation. I think one of the things that become abundantly clear looking at Bowling's work, I would say particularly from that period, is that the answers that he gives you or that you may be looking for are never straightforward. There's always a, a, a complexity, which again, sort of like, you know, goes back to the complexity of his own life story, right? Being from Guyana, someone who, when he arrives in New York, is an, immig- like, is an immigrant uh, expat twice over. So he brings with him that accumulated experience, life experience, and I also think artistic sensitivity. And so I think if I understand you right, I would agree with you that I think there's, there's always sort of like the combination of experiences and that come through in his work. It's never sort of like a straightforward kind of, this is who I am, right? It's always about, well, you might think, you know who I am, but in fact, it's more difficult or it's more complex. Yeah, there's complexity running through. I mean, the surfaces are complex. The references are complex. Really, the only thing that's straightforward is the enormity. <laughs> These are giant, giant paintings. We've both referenced Bowling's use of maps painting. Many of the paintings have be- become colloquially known as the map paintings. Why was Bowling... This is the most obvious and dumbest question, but why was Bowling interested in maps? Why why, and how did they work their way into his paintings? There, There is an anecdote about him working in his studio, and I think it through the sunlight coming in from a, a window, um, a sort of a map-like form starts to appear. I don't know if it was on the wall or one of the canvases, and he starts to sort of like, you know, outline its forms. And so that's how the form of the map is being introduced in the work. But of course, that anecdote, I think, ultimately would still leave me with the question, why the map? Because it is a form and a form of, you know, expressing colonial power of a very Western-centric form, a tradition of outlining, trying to secure and express power in many ways that he puts on its head in a way, right? So Bowling's map, what is what stands out are dominated in most cases by outlines of continents from the Southern Hemisphere. And so again, Bowling is turning his attention to a tradition that he must have been very aware of, but he makes it his own. He turns it upside down and he subverts many of that many aspects of that tradition in a brilliant way. And then, as you just mentioned, blowing them up to immense scale, right? So they really become immersive. They really, you as a viewer, start to disappear in front of these paintings, even more so maybe I would imagine than what Barnett Newman maybe was hoping for. 
when he was thinking about the relationship between the viewer and the painting and the painted surface. And of course, Bowling made a painting referencing Newman, painting now at the Tate, Who's Afraid of Barney Newman, a 1968 picture in, in your show. That's a good transition back to Bowling being in New York, which I wanted to talk a bit more about. You mentioned earlier that when Bowling arrives in New York to live in 1966, that he didn't have any relationships with black American artists when he got here. How did he build those relationships? Yeah, let's start there. How did he build those relationships? So there were a few people who functioned, if you will, as, as door openers who he knew previously. So he made a few trips to New York. And then so he would rely on them to a degree to sort of like help him introduce to some of the um, artistic circles. He first lived at the Chelsea Hotel. So I think he kind of immersed himself very quickly to a whole bunch of artists and, and people from the broader cultural New York scene. And then he starts to make these connections to African-American artists, some who also kind of moved to New York um, with maybe some similar intentions, if you will, to really be in a place where people were coming together, debating around some of the, the really vital issues at the time. Um, he made those connections rather quickly. I, would, I, I think it's interesting to think that, in a way, Bowling's start in the New York scene happens as much through his work as a visual artist as it happened through his engagement, broader engagement, including writing, um, as well as sort of functioning as an interlocutor. I think Bowling, while in New York, and we can maybe talk about that at a later point when we, I guess, we'll get to talk a little bit about an exhibition that he curated in 1969, titled Five Plus One. But I think Bowling, very, with a lot of self-awareness, um, used his insider-outsider status as a Black artist, but not African-American, in the New York art scene to take a stance on certain issues, sort of like the, these very hotly debated conversations around what Black art should or shouldn't do, in which spaces, in which contexts Black artists should or shouldn't exhibit. And then, so he has like this, which at this point I think comes as an advantage to a degree. He has this like double consciousness and double identity as an insider-outsider. And he uses that to move in and out of these contexts and in and out of these debates in a very fluid way. And I think that is a real, a real generative approach in, and during these years, especially, I would say, between around 1967 until the early 1970s. Speaking of which, you note in your essay that Bowling's writings were particularly informed by Du Bois. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I think you can see where, like, I think, you know, if you start reading bowling, you really understand the amount of reading, of studying that goes into his work ultimately. Also, I would argue, like, in his paintings, but of course, on a much less tangible way, maybe. You mentioned five plus one a moment ago. What was it? And why was it, I guess, important not only to bowling's relationship building, but maybe to the work he would make? So five plus one is a 
I think in retrospect, an incredibly interesting exhibition. Frank Bowling was invited by Stony Brook University, which at that point was only a few years old, to curate an exhibition, actually in a classroom. So it wasn't, there wasn't the university art gallery space, really, but um, they were interested in bringing in artists of color. And I think Bowling intentionally was drawn to that university context as opposed to a more traditional institutional context. Bowling brings along five artists of color, all African-American, amongst them Jack Whitten, Melvin Edwards. So in retrospect, not maybe from, you know, that time's perspective, because at that point, none of these artists, including Bowling, got even close to the art market success or success in terms of exhibiting at the major institutions that they deserved during their time. But in retrospect, some of the great artists from that time, he brings them together in an exhibition that was intentionally all artists who were maybe working in in different media, but all working in a similar vein insofar that they were not overtly political artists, that they weren't like making overtly work with a clear and first and foremost political message. They were all working in this space of abstraction, also having a very clear political stance and message, of course. Bowling titles the exhibition Five Plus One because he's a black artist, but he's not African-American. So that makes him sort of like the plus one. Again, these, this conscious play about being an insider and an outsider at the same time. Looking at the very few images, and I will say it's telling that there's little information that survives about this exhibition. We have one exhibition review from the time. We have a few beautiful photographs by Atra Cohen's. And then we have a catalog, a very slim sort of gallery booklet, if you will. That's what we have in terms of like what survives. And in fact, a few, many of the works that were in that exhibition got lost too. So I think it's telling that, you know, thinking about where we are today and how much appreciation and how much attention we give these artists, how they were so incredibly under-recognized and underappreciated during that time. I mean, I can't think of another reason why so little or why it must why it is so hard to to put together in pieces what this exhibition might have looked like and it's a really interesting exhibition because it is happening in this university context and it's it's of course in line with you know a few other exhibitions that happened right before and after that but then bowling with this exhibition also inserts himself in this very, at that time, lively debate around exhibitions of artists of color and how would these look like and who would participate and what's the message here and what's the, what's the meaning about making such exhibitions in the first place. Let me, let me jump in for a second because I wanted to quote a couple of things Bowling wrote about, about what you just mentioned. He noticed that white-led American, and I think this has real resonance today, frustratingly perhaps, Bowling noticed that white-led American art museums were responding to then-current events, uh, you know, in the late 60s, by showing exhibitions of black artists that had little curatorial thesis beyond 
here are black artists. And you write in your catalog essay that Bowling found this, quote, deeply tokenistic and, quote, an essentializing perception of the work of black artists as political protest first and foremost at the expense of a more nuanced view that would recognize the magnitude of their conceptual and formal innovations. So with that having been set up, I guess now I let you (laughs) finish what you were saying, which I think was going to be about what Bowling did as an address of that condition. Right. You know, I think I think what's what's driving bowling in these years and really the reason why he moved to New York in the first place is he wanted to be recognized as major modern figure. Like he wanted to like be right up there as part of the canon of like, you know, the great, great painters of that time, which of course happens to be a very white and a very male club of artists. And so Bowling's intention is to inscribe himself with great passion, with great intention into such a canon. So for those large scale exhibitions that start to pop up like across the country, including in, by the way, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and its exhibition from 1970, African-American artists Boston, New York, um, in which Bowling participated and then, you know, criticized its, its curatorial thesis. I think for Bowling, it was five plus one was to say, look, here are six artists that are amongst the leading artists in their various genres, period. And please take us serious as artists in the first place. And then, yes, we also happen to be black. And yes, there is a narrative and there is a undercurrent sort of like story in our work that talks about that. But we first and foremost want to be taken serious as artists. And that's sort of like a different take on being included in a large show that sort of threw, you know, 50, 60, 70 artists of color into a show with, with, without any further curatorial thesis, if you will. So then race becomes the um, denominating factor um, that brings these artists together. I actually think from today's perspective, I'm not, I wouldn't dare to sort of make a judgment, right? Because I do think all of these artists and what they were trying to achieve was absolutely necessary to move the needle. I'm not trying to say that like those large exhibitions that are super interesting from today's perspective were less necessary or lesser than an exhibition such as five plus one. But I think it is important to point out that amongst black artists, these were questions that were debated and this was not anything but a unified block. They had very, they had varying opinions on which type of exhibitions artists should and shouldn't participate in. Yeah, and I think those exhibitions continue today. And I hear a lot of artists, say women artists, who complain about being included of shows of all women artists. The only thing holding the 60 artists together is that they're women. You know, that that, that hasn't ended editorializing over, but yeah. I, I think it's. I think this is this is sort of where it gets very productive from a also an institutional perspective to sort of look back at some of the activism and some of the conversations 
these artists had in their time and to think about where we are now, what has changed and also understand that, you know, some of the issues, some of the challenges continue to exist and truly the needle has moved little, if at all, in some, in some instances, whereas I think in other areas we have made, we have made significant progress, but I think it's very important to acknowledge that there's a ton of work to remains to be done. And I think we need to continue to be very, like, be very self-critical about like, how do we create context and space if we say we want to do more diverse program. So, of course, Bowling wasn't only an artist and a curator. He was a writer, and writing was a really important part of the work he did in and around New York when he lived there. What were the major subjects of his writing, and for whom was he writing? Who was the audience? So he, he writes for rather large arts journals, and um, his main subject is really the question of black art. If, if there is such a thing as black art, and if so, how could you define it? And um, from his more personal perspective, how does he himself sort of puts himself in a relationship to to that category? And um, it's, I think, if you if you st- if you read bowling, it's really interesting. It's it's very witty. It's quite aggressive. Like he really takes a stance. He says very openly, I like this artist, I really don't like this artist, I think that was a successful show, this wasn't a successful exhibition, and here's why. But then Bowling's main subject, in terms of his writing, is much more overtly political in tone than his paintings are. So I think there's a, it's not a discrepancy really, but clearly his activism and um, taking a political stance comes through in a much more direct and tangible way in his writing than it does in his work as a painter. Has Bowling's work as a writer been collected anywhere yet? Not really. It's something we're we're doing um, to a degree um, as part of the exhibition. Like it, there there are collections of his writings as part of a few more recent catalogs, and um, in particular. And the beautiful catalog and the beautiful show that Okui did at the Haus der Kunst a few years ago. But um, to actually create a complete archive of Bowling's writing is something that is outstanding, but also something that I know is underway and will shed a lot of new light onto an artist who deserves that, that attention. Let's talk a little bit about how Bowling constructed these pictures in his studio. I mean, the most obvious thing is that they're enormous. They're often four and five and six and more meters across, for example. But he's not just working at scale. He's working with a range of techniques across individual works. So what are some of those techniques, some of those things he's doing to to each painting? Well, I think one thing that is important to observe is that in those nine-ish years that he spends in New York, he sort of goes through a very broad vocabulary of techniques. Starting with the more figurative paintings, he quickly introduces sort of spray painting as a technique that becomes more, more, more important in the work. Moving into these, as you described them, extremely large fields of mostly 
Mark Rothko and others. And then in the 1970s, what starts to happen is he starts to like combine many different painterly approaches from spilling to dripping. He uses adhesive tape. In some, in some instances, that adhesive tape stays on the canvas as part of the final composition. In others, he puts, takes that away again. And we looked at Sun Crush in and the MFA's collection with our conservators. And if you start to look closely at those surfaces, it's absolutely astonishing. The amount of techniques that sort of like are being applied on top of each other that then sort of make up the picture surface. And so I think after his move back to London, Bowling's work continues to evolve as it does today. I would say that he accumulates a lot of the techniques that he still applies in one way or another today in those formative years in New York. One of the things we see happening across the show is we see representation early, Mother's House and the maps, of course. And then when we get into the early 70s, the maps get fainter or smaller uh, within the vast pictures, and eventually they go away altogether, and the pictures are, are really abstract. Why do you think the maps fell out and the pictures embraced a more Aulian abstraction? I titled the text that I wrote for the catalog, um, Where is Frank Bowling? I think it has to do with Frank Bowling's intention to remove himself to a much greater degree from the painting, to sort of like take a step back, if you will, behind, behind the picture. And then I think for him to actually achieve that was to transition from figuration to fully fledged abstraction, where the last hints of like, you know, legibility in terms of like a, a, a form that you can discern and that you can identify as sort of like a more direct denominator of meaning is being eliminated. And so it's a real journey, like during his time in New York um, towards abstraction, I think exactly with the goal of trying to sort of like, you know, I think disappear in his own work. But yet, of course, I don't know if that would ever be possible. And I do believe strongly that it doesn't truly disappear, but of course it shifts, right? So like, whereas Frank Bowling is then being answered by, for example, the tonality of the colors, the vibrancy, um, sort of think about like this, I don't even know what, how to, to point that down, but like, is there something like a, a Caribbean sort of like feel to these paintings that really only someone like Frank Bowling could have painted? And so I think it's just a different answer to that question. And um, one that might be a little less straightforward than the mother's house, which even that isn't a straightforward answer, but it's at least a leg legible image. And so in those later works, that isn't the case any longer. And so then the question or the answer to where, where is Frank Bowling becomes one where he really kind of fully masters this like way of appearing and disappearing in his own work. So it's funny you say disappearing in the work because there are two paintings in the show, one from 1969 called Mel Edwards Decides and one from 1972 called Looking at Barney and Mark in which Bowling includes his own name stenciled on 
I say on the surface of the painting, but but stenciled in a way that that it's legible within the painting. Why do you think he he does that? What work does his name do in those pictures? It's a good question, and I'm not sure if I have a an answer that would satisfy you. But I do think, in particular, with the painting looking at Barney and Mar, it's a way of inserting himself into that what he considers like a canon. Like he was very outright about, you know, Barnett Newman, that was an artist to sort of like, as an artist, if you wanted to really get to the top, like if you really wanted to be taken serious, and if you kind of, you know, study the history of art, someone you had to sort of like work through to get to that, get to that level. So I think for him, it was like, in, in the title, but then also even more so in inserting his own name into the, the painting, a way of literally inserting himself into the canon. With Mel Edwards' decide, it's a slightly different story. And it's an interesting one because I mentioned the exhibition African-American Artists Boston, New York that happened at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. It was one of those large sweeping exhibitions on black art. I think it was more than 70 artists participating. Mel Edwards was invited to, and Mel Edwards op- decides to opt out of the exhibition, specifically because it was just a show on black artists with little further of a curatorial thesis, if you will. Frank Bowling, on the other hand, decides to participate but he titles his work, Mel Edwards Decide, hinting at there would have been, obviously, another option for him too. And so it's a really interesting case study. And, and that exhibition then in subsequent articles that Bowling writes himself, he criticizes the exhibition very outright, just because of sort of like, you know, the lack of curatorial thesis it had. Again, like incredibly grateful that this exhibition happened at the MFA. I think it's um, incredible for me to look back at the institution's history and think about like one of the largest, most interesting exhibitions at that time having happened here. But at the same time, I understand how someone like Mel Edwards and Bowling to, to, a, to a degree too, would be skeptical about it too. Many things can be tr- simultaneously true. Exactly. I, exactly. And I think many things were maybe necessary in terms of, you know, tools to be applied to move the needle or like for a specific cause um, to be heard. And I do think, again, you know, as you exactly say, it was probably both necessary and important at the same time. Rato Turing, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. Absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first Black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights moment. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks.
On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection. You can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. Welcome back. Next up, I'm joined by Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Lisa Volpe. She joins me to discuss her new exhibition, Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael and Black Power, which is on view in Houston through January 16th, 2023. The exhibition presents and considers pictures of Carmichael that Parks made for Life magazine in 1967. This is another show with a really great catalog. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $45 or $50. Lisa Volpe, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. When and where did Gordon Parks and Stokely Carmichael meet? And can you provide some, I don't know, historical context, historical background info for the moment of their meeting? I will fill in what I can, although some of it still remains a bit fuzzy. Parks met Carmichael in the fall of 1966, most likely at Watts, California, at the Watts Rally, which was happening you know, one year after the Watts uprising and Carmichael was speaking there. Parks was asked to do this story by life. He was no longer a full-time staff photographer there. He had kind of stepped back a little bit and was taking contract work with the magazine. But Parks says in his biography that stories like Stokely Carmichael were the ones he wanted to do in the worst way. So I think following Stokely's proclamation of black power in Greenwood, Mississippi, in summer of 66, life decided this was someone they wanted to profile. They turned to Parks. And by the fall, Parks was with Stokely traveling around for between three and four months until the essay was published in the magazine in May 1967. So the exhibition and the catalog are, in a way, an investigation into that article and the photographs that accompanied it. Again, Life Magazine, May 1967. What was that story that Parks wrote and shot? Which is to say, what story did it tell and show? And why was it of interest to, I guess, everybody involved? Why was it of interest to the magazine? Why was it of interest 
to Parks? Why was engaging with Life Magazine and Parks of interest to Carmichael? You know, in order to answer those, we have to kind of like plunge ourselves back into that moment in time. You know, I did a quick New York Times review from their archives and Stokely's name is in the paper almost every day from that June 1966 moment in Greenwood, Mississippi, until he re- he resigns from SNCC in May 1967. So he is this incredibly large figure in the civil rights movement. And of course, the press is positioning him against other civil rights leaders. You know, the majority white press, the majority white popular press is really positioning him as this character of racial violence, of separation, you know, saying this is not how King articulates civil rights and really pitting them against each other, Carmichael and Martin Luther King. And Parks, who had for years been producing these really sensitive profiles on many figures in the civil rights movement, from Malcolm X to Muhammad Ali, you know, is eager to take this one on because the vision he sees of Carmichael in his paper, on his TV, is really that vision of racial violence. It's just this one-dimensional character. And Parks is eager to explore the other dimensions of Carmichael's character and really figure this out. And on Carmichael's part, he's just looking for any opportunity still at this moment to define Black power properly. It's so misdefined and maligned in the press that he is writing essays and books and giving lectures all across the nation, doing interviews, really trying to recover the real meaning of this term. And I think he saw Parks as an opportunity to do that and as probably a little bit more of a sensitive ear being a black photographer to do that rather than the typical white reporter that was sent after him. I am going to step outside kind of the setup narrative here for a moment because there's a picture that is perfect to raise and discuss in light of what you just said. The first plate in the catalog, and as I understand it, planned to be the first physical photograph in the exhibition, is a picture of Carmichael on a gravel road in Alabama in 1966. How is that photograph, that single photograph, something of a, well, maybe more than something of, totally a rejoinder to the construction of Carmichael that you just referenced? Yeah, I mean, it is. And every kind of part of this story is present in this photo in one way or another. And it was one of only five photos that Life magazine chose to feature in print, despite, you know, Parks traveling for all these months with Carmichael. First of all, you know, from my own time, my own age, Carmichael strikes me as so young. He looks so young in this photo. And I think Parks kind of emphasizes that a little, taking the photo from a lower angle, shooting up. The road is almost, you know, three quarters of the way behind Carmichael, almost almost covering him, making him seem maybe a little smaller than he was in real life. That youth is there. He's wearing jeans. 
He's wearing his Lowndes County sweatshirt, which is emblazoned with the Black Panther logo, the words freedom and justice. He has his hands in his pockets. He's looking off into the distance. It's this really incredible mix of Carmichael's history in Lowndes County, where he was establishing the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, a political party. You know, it shows him literally on a road. He spent so much time going door to door, registering voters in that county. Many such photographs in the exhibition. Yes. It's just, it's just such a, a beautiful photo and a beautiful hero shot, I guess, is the best way to put it. Parks is looking up slightly at Carmichael. And of course, behind Carmichael is a cross. Yes, the telephone pole. And this religious symbolism carries through the photographs that Parks produced for life. Parks is a brilliant photographer. He has studied Life magazine. He knows what the editors want. He knows the typical readers. He knows how to manipulate, isn't quite the right word, but utilize all that knowledge to express what he wants to express. So yes, we have Carmichael on the road with a cross in the background that is a telephone pole. And later, we have Carmichael in Atlanta at the SNCC office in an image where he's slumped over his desk. It's a very small kind of, you know, informal desk, and he's resting in this weary way on top of it. And Parks has made sure to frame it with the images above the desk on the wall in a way that makes you immediately think of religious pilgrims at an altar in prayer. So he is already urging his viewers to see Carmichael in a new way. You know, not this vision of racial fear, but kind of this God-fearing man, almost a religious martyr. So to go, to go back to one other like detail behind the construction of this body of work and the Project for Life magazine, how did Parks make the photo essay? Just from like a nuts and bolts point of view, how did, how did that work? Did Carmichael sit for studio shots or did Parks follow him to speaking engagements and meetings and, and whatnot? Parks followed him from about the fall of 66 to the spring of 67. So the moments in which he's following him are that opening at Watts at the Watts rally in 66 and then stops following him at the April 15th, 1967 anti-Vietnam war demonstration. So those are kind of the bookends. And he's following him to public lectures and private meetings, to little speeches he's giving in people's living rooms or being on TV. He also shows him in more casual moments, you know, playing pool with Cleveland sellers and attending his sister Lynette's wedding. I mean, I can't even think of how amazing it would have been to have Gordon Parks kind of be your unofficial wedding photographer. <laughs> but Gordon shot three rolls of film during the wedding party, which is so great. So he was, he was following him everywhere. He really wanted to show all angles, all dimensions of Carmichael. And he did that in his text as well as his images. And of course, Parks being a life 
photographer or, or on contract for life at this moment didn't have much control over what images the life editors chose. He sent life his film directly. They processed it into contact sheets, printed some sample prints for the editors. They chose everything. So let me, can I just jump in really quickly? Does that mean that Parks had no say in how the pictures were cropped? Most of the time, yes. But what you will see as you look through Parks's body of work in this case, is how intelligent he is. And again, how much, how closely he studied Life magazine and how he would give editors really juicy choices. Ah, you mean pictorial choices. Pictorial choices, exactly. So there's one photograph of Carmichael teaching at a board, and you can see the words white and black written on the board. And Parks has shot it so that the foreground is almost filled with the silhouette of an audience member. You know, this really dark silhouette of someone's head. And then the left side of the photo just kind of fades off into complete darkness. What that is, is Parks kind of giving his editors an option for a lovely double page spread where the title would be on the left, you know, against this beautiful black and Carmichael would be on the right. You can see him almost thinking about how these would be used in a graphic design sense as he's shooting some of them. And how did you choose to present it in the catalog? (laughs) (laughs) No text on top. We just want the pure, amazing photographs to be out there. Over over two pages. No, I think it's it's just the whole page spread, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, Parks was so brilliant. I actually, there's a Houston-based photographer. His name's Bob Gomel, and he was a Life magazine photographer at the same time as Parks. They knew each other very well. And he was one of many people I interviewed for this project. And Bob told me something that I wrote down, but I will never forget. He said, the number one rule Gordon taught me is if you didn't want to see it in print, you didn't shoot it. So Parks was so aware that, you know, he didn't have control once that film left his camera. So he made those pictures with his editors in mind, with the readers in mind, and with this just amazing artistic eye at the same time. With that in mind, what is the, I don't want to say lead photograph, but the first photograph that ran in the magazine with Parks's article? It is a photograph of Stokely at Watts. He is speaking on a open truck bed to the crowd. And you see him again from a low angle. It's a bit more of an extreme up angle that Parks took this image at. He was clearly standing on the ground where Stokely's on this truck bed. And it's this instant moment when Stokely is turned toward the camera and has his arm raised and is gesturing toward the crowd. And in looking at this photo and knowing Parks's body of work so well, there is clearly an echo between how he photographs Carmichael in this instance and how he previously photographed Malcolm X. So there's a clear lineage being drawn in the style of photography. 
in a number of these pictures, there are art historical relationships, probably references. In the picture in Lowndes County we were talking about a moment ago, I'm sure Parks would have known, especially because it was closer to his time than it is to ours, that in precisionist painting, power, you know, utility poles, whether they were for power lines or telegraph lines or phone lines or whatever, were frequently used by precisionist painters as, as crosses, as explicit references to how, you know, to the Emersonian construction of nature as a place where an individual American could find God and the precisionist's presentation of industry as, 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 as the new nature, as, as, as the new American thing. In this picture, the one that leads the story, my first thought was of how Laocoonie it is, of how it kind of references the twisting pose of the classical Laocoon form sculpture that, you know, dozens of European artists riffed on, and the power of the fighter. Yeah, I love that reading. I would not put it past Parks to know that, be consciously doing it. You know, I was really clued into more of the religious reference here, and particularly because in the essay, Parks makes a lot of comparisons between Carmichael and his own son, David, who was serving in Vietnam. So he's following around a young man about his son's age, who is, you know, publicly making these anti-Vietnam statements anti-Vietnam war statements while his own son is there. And I did some, you know, digging and put together a timeline. And I found out that David Parks shipped out to Vietnam literally two days after Lynette Carmichael's wedding. So for me at this wedding, Parks is of course thinking about family, thinking about his own son, looking at them both. And in the essay, he talks about, who would be dying for the greater cause, whether his son really knows what he might die for or whether it's Carmichael who's more sure what he might be laying his life down for. And so for me, that kind of reference of being a martyr to the cause and reading that as a crucifix in the back is like the strongest. That's really interesting because Life and its editors chose not to reproduce any of the photographs that reference the anti-war movement and Carmichael's involvement in it in, in the magazine. Are those photographs in the show? Yes, yes, absolutely. The show moves semi-chronologically, but mostly in terms of geography. So we open Lowndes County and the SNCC headquarters in Atlanta, move into Watts, then, you know, L.A., San Francisco, and then we end at that, you know, New York demonstration right outside the U.N. building. And Parks was there the whole time. He photographed Martin Luther King speaking on that same stage and then Stokely. And for me, the contrast of how he photographs them is really fascinating. King is really a more static figure. He's standing there in kind of a black trench coat, not moving. Hands his hands pockets. are in his pockets. Yes. He really eliminates the crowd. Parks eliminates the crowd in the composition. But with Carmichael, you have this figure, open coat, big gestures, 
he includes the entire huge crowd in it. It just feels like it's building momentum towards something. And in the catalog, we actually include Gordon Parks's first draft of his essay. And that's really what he talks about, like the energy of that moment and of the crowd. And I think it ends with the phrase, Stokely Carmichael is on the rise. So it must have been very strange for Parks to learn a few days later that Carmichael had resigned from his permission or from his position as chairman of SNCC. And Parks had to kind of rewrite. So it's it's a really, really fascinating moment and just how Parks moves and adapts to a rapidly changing situation. We should also probably note that I'm sure that Parks did not write his headlines and and subheads. The subhead of Parks's story has a rich history in New York newspaper and magazine journalism of the era. The subhead is Stokely Carmichael, young man behind an angry message. In New York journalism of the era, all black people were angry all the time. To, to point out injustice in America was inevitably to be incomprehensibly angry, at least to white editors. One of the types of pictures that the portfolio of the exhibition is rich in are, are photographs of meetings. Lots of people sitting around lots of tables. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure Carmichael did lots of that, right? I mean, that's, that's what organizing is. But it seems to have been important to Parks to take and make those pictures available. What, and, and, and I'm guessing it struck you, too, because you included a bunch of them. Why do you think that those pictures were so interesting to Parks? I think because, again, it showed another aspect of Carmichael's character. In so many of the photos of him lecturing, he is this dynamo. He is up on the stage. He's gesturing. Every eye is on him. You can feel the energy of those moments. In so many of the meetings, he is sitting back. He's listening. He is, in many of the cases, not leading these meetings. He is really an active participant. But it shows him in this other role you know, not this fiery or angry figure, as you just pointed out, is so was so prevalent in the press. It really shows him as a student in many ways. And so Parks thought it was so important to include. And I would also say, and this is just fascinating to me, in the research portion of this project, I reached out and spoke with everyone in those photos that I could identify and that is still with us. And it was really fascinating to hear the ins and outs of those moments. Most people had perfect recall for what this was. You know, this is a meeting in San Francisco of the editors of the movement newspaper. I am sitting there. I'm sitting right next to this person. We talked about A, B, and C that day. Almost perfect recall for the situation. Almost none of them remembered Gordon Parks being in the room, which to me is fascinating. He is a major figure by this moment. There is one photo of Stokely at the UN anti-Vietnam War demonstration talking to the crowd. And if you look on the right side and you look very carefully, there is another photographer pointing his camera exactly at Parks. So he knew who he was. <laughs> a white, a white <laughs> photographer. 
Yes. And was eager to be like, oh, that's Gordon Parks. Take a picture. No one else in these very serious and critical meetings even remember him being there. He really was a fly on the wall in the best way, capturing these occasions and these meetings and capturing these genuine reactions from people. When I saw that picture in the catalog, I immediately wondered if that was an FBI photographer. <laughs> you know, I tried so hard to find out who that was and where that image went, but I couldn't find it in the end. So researchers out there, I lay my challenge <laughs> down to you now. You know, I one more thing on the meetings pictures. So every, except for that one posed portrait that we talked about a moment ago, Every picture in the catalog and show is an action picture. So even within the meeting pictures where 17 people are sitting around a rectangular table, there's stuff going on. And as a viewer, you are mindful that thing that, that there is movement and action. And so hearing what you just said about nobody remembering Parks being in the room, it made me think that there is a symbiosis between photographing action while appearing to be so far apart from it, you aren't remembered as being there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say, yeah, they all capture action. Although I'm tempted, I'm going to go ahead and say there is one contact sheet I included of Carmichael walking on the empty road at dusk or dawn. I'm not quite sure, but low light conditions that I'm pretty sure was also set up by Parks, that Parks really wanted to capture this particular image. So while the others are kind of candids, except for that opening shot of him on the road, I would say this is the only other time that Parks might be directing behind the scenes. Walking is action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still action. You're absolutely right. It's just, you know, not candid. I'm glad you brought up a contact sheet because I wanted to close by asking a couple things about about the contact sheets. Um, there, there, there are a number of them in, in the show and in the book. What do you hope they show us? Are we seeing aesthetic decisions? Are we seeing historical constructions? What do they reveal to us? Yeah, they reveal a lot. I mean, I, as a researcher, as a photo historian from this era, I love contact sheets. I think they give you a peek into the photographer's mind at work. And with Parks, there's a lot going on there. He's so smart and such a savvy photographer. So one of the things I noticed when I got all the contact sheets from the foundation is that typically Gordon Parks gets his shot in the first or second frame. He's really good. You know, he sees something, he hits the shutter, and he gets it. So that meant if I'm seeing a contact sheet or, you know, a strip of film that there are five, ten, or in the case of this sheet of Carmichael walking um, on the road in low light in Lowndes County, 15 shots in a row where he's capturing the same thing, I know I need to pay attention because Parks is trying to articulate something incredibly specific. So what is that? Well, in this case, the moment you look at these 15 shots of Carmichael walking down the road, if you are a photo historian from this era, one image should pop into your mind, and that is W. Eugene Smith's Country Doctor. 
you know, it was one of Life Magazine's most famous photo essays of all time. And it opens with Dr. Sirianni walking along the road at daybreak next to a fence going to help a patient. So when Parks is recasting Carmichael in this role as the country doctor, he is urging us to see him as that kind of selfless hero that we know from that previous life essay. And he, you know, uses 15 frames to try and make that apparent. It's really fascinating. And Parks admits Country Doctor was one of his favorite life essays of all time. So we know he knew it inside and out. And there are other contact sheets that just show Carmichael at different moments in his life that clearly were important, again, for Parks to articulate. So I had to ask myself, why? In the car, you know, he's singing. You can tell he's singing to the radio. He's kind of joking around with the other people in the car. And so speaking to some past SNCC members who rode with him in that car, they told me that SNCC would train their drivers in defensive maneuvers, that you had to learn to evade danger, you know, from other cars, especially in areas of the Deep South. And so by choosing the driver's seat in these instances, Carmichael is choosing to take responsibility for the lives of everyone else in the car. But he is joyful in doing it. And it tells you so much. And Parks spends almost an entire roll of film photographing Carmichael behind the wheel of the car. So it was just a clue to pay attention to certain things, to like these bolded or underlined statements that Parks was trying to make. And so, you know, for him, I'm calling those out in the catalog and in the exhibition. The country doctor picture dates to 1948, which means that Parks was pulling from historical memory, if you will, an an image 18 years old. So it wasn't, you know, immediate of mind. Well, oddly it was. There is a Look magazine from 1966. So this is Look, this is Life's Competitor, that they purposely name an essay, The Kentucky Doctor. Oh, so there was a, you're saying a contemporary reason why that portfolio might have been on Parks's mind. I think it, even from 1948 on, was a classic that almost everyone knew. And so Parks is not the only one tapping into it at that moment. It's literally one of the biggest ones life ever did. So people were aware. Finally, about these contact sheets, you told us earlier that Parks sent rolls of film to New York and they took it from there. Do we have a sense of or knowledge of whether the contact sheets that we see in the show or contact sheets like them were generative or useful or part of a process with which Parks engaged after the magazine stories ran? I don't, I'm not clear when he got his contact sheets back from life. I know that they are now in the possession of the Gordon Parks Foundation, who, you know, supported this entire exhibition, and I couldn't have done it without their generosity, certainly. I don't know when they took possession of those, so that's a, that's a great question. But Parks 
is such a fascinating character in the way that he deals with his own history and his own career. This is a man that wrote five, six autobiographies. (laughs) He's constantly revisiting his past, altering how he sees it, how he describes it slightly differently. He produced a book in the early 70s called Born Black that revisits a lot of his civil rights profiles for life, this Stokely profile included, though he uses almost the same selection of images that the magazine used. So he is constantly thinking about it and looking back and dwelling on it and reconfiguring it. So it would not surprise me in any way if later on he looked at these and they generated some additional thoughts or additional work. That would not surprise me. Everything else that he has left us, you know, points in that direction. Lisa Volpe, thank you. Thank you. It was so much fun. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.